Welcome to this podcast for Classical 91.5. I'm Julia Figueres. The Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra closes their season on a high note, literally. Mozart's Cosi Fan Tutte is being performed. And here to tell us about it are your RPO music director, Ward Stair. Welcome back, Ward. Hi, Julia. Nice to see you. Also here is Kinza Tyrrell. Hi, Kinza. Hi there. And last but not least, Grant Pricer. Hi, Grant. Hey there. All right, so let's just dive right in. You chose Mozart. You have often closed the season with some kind of opera. This time around, Mozart. Why? Well, why not? I mean, Mozart is, uh, I think, for me, um, out of all the unbelievably brilliant, beautiful music that he wrote, you know, for symphonic uh, form, chamber music, concerti, um, Mozart in my opinion, was at his very, very height uh, in opera. It's the best thing, the pinnacle of everything. I mean, he's, his operas are just incredible, all of them, really. I mean, especially the later ones, and the De Ponte collaboration is just legendary. And Cosi is like one of my Desert Island pieces. I mean, the music from start to finish is just absolutely gorgeous. There's not a wasted note. Uh, I think it's, it's just... It, I, I can't really find the words to describe how incredibly beautiful... It is. And so, you know, we've been building up um, our audience. And, you know, I think people are really, they get excited for the opera every year. And so after the sort of blockbusters that we did, like Grant, you know, did Bohem with us a few couple years ago, um, Carmen, Traviata, I thought it was time for something a, a little bit more refined and time for some Mozart. You know, I just have to say that I think that Verdi would be offended if you, well, he found out you, you felt that Mozart was more refined. I'm not just... <laughs> well, okay. They're very different. They're very different animals. Yes, they you are. know, Verdi and Mozart, Wagner, Strauss. I mean, they're all have their own personalities. So let's, let's d- go to the Wayback Machine. Were Mozart's operas, they were hits right out of the box, all of them, right? Not... All of them, no. Not all of them. I mean, Cozy only had 10 performances, um, and then it kind of fell to the wayside for quite a while. It didn't actually have an American premiere until, I think, 1922 mm-hmm. was when the Met premiered it. Um, so this was, I would say this was not a hit. Um, it's become more of a standard since then, and I think, it, I think it appeals much more to our contemporary audiences because of the nature of the subject matter um, and the commentary on relationships and... Um, women, <laughs> in particular, um, and so I think I think Cozy is an is an example of a not so popular um, opera. What went wrong? Oh well, I don't know. I wasn't there, but um, <laughs> you I can guess. An we're, in educated way, we're in the guess. way back machine. I, yeah. Oh, we're in the way back machine. <laughs> yeah. I think. Thank that, you, Grant. Um, <laughs> the uh, the subject matter actually for for the Viennese at the at that time, the end of the 18th century, I think was actually okay. But um, didn't didn't the emperor die or something? And there was, uh, I'm he trying did. to remember my history yeah. there. That sort of, because the city was in mourning for a while, I think right after they opened, and then they had to sort of get it started again. And then Mozart was on to other things. And then, of course, he died. And um, his his widow actually said, I think, you know, not long after his death in the, like 1805, 18, you know, very early 1800s, that she wasn't sure it would survive because everything was starting to get a little more conservative. Then we got into the really like Victorian era and, you know, the idea of couple swapping was just completely taboo. Mm -hmm. And so people just avoided it. So Kinza, step in here and talk to us a little bit about the women in this particular 
opera? Well, there's three of them. Uh, <laughs> two of them are sisters. The older one uh, has more of a sense of duty, uh, being the older one. And the younger one is... Trouble. Trouble. <laughs> and very in, uh, easily influenced. And then you have their, I guess you call it the maid, and she's the clever, witty, um, smart, wily one. So very different personalities. Which one do you play? Uh, she plays. I actually, <laughs> I she play them all, all in my living room <laughs> at home. <laughs> no, I'm actually the um, the forte piano continuo player. So, so I'm that's playing what you play. during the show. I'm not singing. What is this about? Um, because when when it was someone talked to me about hiring about having you all come in, I was told the forte piano is the forte piano player is coming, and why is the forte piano a big deal? Well, I mean, I'll let Kinza tell you exactly what she does, but just to frame it, I mean, there are two kinds of recitativos in this opera and in this style. There's secco, which is just the keyboard and the singers, and then there's accompagnato, which is the orchestra accompanying a recit. So, um, but the lion's share of the recitativo is done with just the singers and the keyboard. So, um, Kinza, tell, why don't you tell and them how that works? why is that? Because... Yeah. <laughs> uh, Kinza, so, Kinza, why is that? Yeah. Well, recitare, the word recitativo comes from that verb, which means to recite. So the recitative passages are the passages in the opera that aren't sung, but they're more parlando spoken, uh, where the plot advances very quickly. And so the text goes by very quickly and at a spoken tempo. And in order to accomplish that, you uh, have it with a keyboard instrument that can... Um, accompany with very fast chords um, that an orchestra wouldn't be able to necessarily keep up with. And so because one person is playing at a keyboard, it only takes one brain to follow the singers if they if they run away with their lines, with their, which they're totally able to do. Every night can be a different uh, rendition of the piece. Uh, one person has to chase the singers and catch them on the cadences. Whereas in the accompanied recit, it's a little more structured and it has a little more... Uh, tempi that have been established and the secco which means dry recit is something that can be done very off the cuff very spontaneously and so a keyboard um, is used is this the actual way that the opera was performed back in the day yes so the, the, so this was a hugely important part the, uh, in, of the of the instrumentation was the forte piano. Absolutely. So, if you will spend a little time to explain to us what the difference between the forte piano and the beast that uh, I assume you will be playing with the RPO, is it different than the beast that we listen to on a regular basis? I'm assuming by beast you mean the, the, the big old grand piano? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, let's take you back even further to the harpsichord. So the harpsichord comes from the Baroque era, Bach and people like that handle. And so uh, early 1700s is when the Forte piano was existing in, in Italy, and so Mozart being born in 1756, by the sort of end of his life, he was switching over to the Forte piano to compose on. And um, so the harpsichord is actually the instrument that's more used in Mozart operas because it was grandfathered into his time on this earth. And the Forte piano was then uh, used as well. So now people have a dis discussion whether we should use the harpsichord or the forte piano because Mozart would have used one or the other in his operas. Compared to the grand piano today, 
the strings are much thicker on the grand piano. There's a lot more keys. There's 88 keys as opposed to 40 or so on the forte piano. Um, the material of the piano is much more reinforced on the modern day piano. You have a sustain pedal on the modern piano, which you don't on the forte piano. So um, everything's bigger on the grand piano. Everything can be louder. That's the short answer. Mm-hmm. And all the notes can be longer. And the grand pianos are usually black, unless you're Pavarotti. Uh, Liberace, and you've got you know, white <laughs> ones and blue ones and everything. And, and, the, and the forte pianos tend to be just a wooden color. So what are you playing with the RPO, the forte piano, the harpsichord, or the big black? The forte piano, the middle one. Where did this come from, Ward? Where did the instrument come from? Uh, Who invented it, or? No, no, our our actual, the actual actual instrument that that we're using came from where? She is such a wise guy. She's She's a wealth of information. She's so been she fun to quiz well. me. Um, <laughs> we are very grateful to the Eastman School of Music for loaning us uh, their forte piano for this week. We're using theirs. Is there a significant difference um, in pressure in when you perform on a forte piano versus harpsichord versus piano? Uh, is there is there an extreme difference in how you have to use that instrument, Kinza. Absolutely. I know it seems weird to say this, but on the grand piano of today, the keys are white, and then there's little black keys above. On the pianoforte, the keys are black, and the black keys are white, so it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. And the key size that you play on is, is about half the size. Not the width, but the depth of the key is about half the size so you you feel a little bit like Schroeder from the Peanuts (laughs) where you have to just have smaller fingers and smaller hand positions to get the right notes and you have to just be a lot more delicate in general playing on on the instrument so no rock three on this one no rock three maybe rock two or Springsteen Oh, well, yeah, that would be fine. We, we could, or a little Radiohead, that could be very interesting as well. Uh, so, Grant, what are you doing in this production this time around? Um, so I'm, I've been working with them in terms of um, being the stage director. Um, it, is, it is a concert version, but it is basically fully staged. So working with the cast and, and navigating that they will be singing in front of the orchestra, um, working through scene changes and talking through all that all the stage business um, with the actors and and trying to create the story for the you, audience you have so little time to get her done that's true <laughs> that is true um, we've been we've been very lucky um, the cast is fantastic um, some amazing voices um, most of them have done the show before so they're coming with with you know it you know the role under their belt so it's made it a lot more efficient in terms of getting it up on its feet. Um, but it has been it has been a very intense three days. When we talk about uh, you and your job conducting, Ward, you know, you you obviously do opera a lot, but you do opera from the pit, mm-hmm. and they're <laughs> in front of you. Mm-hmm. Does this cause a problem because it's all happening behind you when you perform <laughs> it this way? Well, it's it's a very different feeling. I can tell you that. Um, Do they have a rear view mirror? They have monitors. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have a rear view mirror. I should maybe that would be just like it would help. Know, the organist so I could <laughs> just see. Right. Um, no, they so they are able to see me, but I am not able to see them. I have to rely only on what I hear, which 
you know, is okay, except for, you know, the moments where you want to allow for some spontaneity and things like that. Sometimes it's, it's difficult because if I were in the pit in the normal position, I would be just trained in on the singers the whole time and I can see exactly what they're doing and react to it when they're behind me. I can't, I have to sort of guess and we have to trust each other. But, um, you know, we've, every production we've done so far um, has, has actually worked surprisingly well, I think. Um, and this is certainly no exception. I mean, the cast, as Grant said, are fantastic. They're all really good musicians. I mean, they all have just those those basic ensemble instincts that are critical to being able to successfully do it the way we're doing it. Um, and they all sing. They know their parts so well that their phrasing is very, when I can hear it, it's very easy to, you know, latch on to, even though I can't see them. So, it, you know, but it, it's challenging. <laughs> And yet you're doing it anyway because you're up to it. It's worth it. it and, and, you know, for our audience to, to be able to hear Cozy, I mean, and mm-hmm. to be able to experience it, um, you know, semi-stage. But as Grant said, I mean, it's a very, very involved. I mean, I'm so impressed with what you've been able to do in so little time. <laughs> it's really great. I mean, the audience, this is, this is a really uh, special thing for our audience. Let's talk a little bit about the difference um, between what you have done up till now, which are these very big... Um, romantics era type operas now you've stepped back in time into the classical era and and there was a lot of opera obviously back then there was Salieri there was Miss Livicek a lot of people had operas what is the standing difference between what was happening in terms of writing opera and performing opera in Mozart's day uh, as opposed to what it turned into in Verdi's day Rossini's day we'll, we'll leave We'll leave Wagner off the table because he's another beast entirely. <laughs> but um, was there a significant difference in the operas? Well, I'm. <clears throat> that's kind of a big question. I'm yes, not sure. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think one thing, and you know, Grant Kinsey, feel free to jump in here. I, one thing that's interesting is that Mozart had personal relationships with almost all the singers that he was writing mm-hmm. these roles for. So, and and I think nowadays, you know. Uh, that's not always the case. It still is sometimes. But, I mean, he was, like, they were all friends in the music scene in Vienna. Like, they, they were making chamber music together. He was writing songs for them, to, like standalones, sometimes inserted into other operas. I can't remember the name. There's an opera that, uh, one of, I can't remember the what it was, but, uh, you know, one of his colleagues had written this opera, and his one of his favorite singers was in it and she needed a better aria and so he wrote it and they just put it into this other guy's <laughs> opera and it was the only hit of the whole night and you right, know it's kind course. of like a speaking <laughs> of sopranos isn't the story with this one that he didn't care for the soprano very much which is why the, her oh, aria is yeah. has yeah. you know yeah. stratosphere notes followed by notes from hell in the basement Huge, huge shifts because she did something weird with her head every time she did it she'd and, throw her head back yeah. for high notes and then drop her head for low notes so yeah. All yeah. of her passages are written that way, yeah. so she's bobbing her head like a chicken. Yep. And, um, he, and, and he it was DuPont's <laughs> mistress or lover at the time. That's right. Yeah, so it was his, the librettist's um, lover at the time. That's who the soprano was who premiered Fiordaligi, and he, mm-hmm. he purposefully wrote that so that she looked ridiculous. She looked like a bobblehead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And, and Mozart loved jokes like that, so that was very intentional. You know? But it's not, but even though it's, it's, j- it's a joke and it's a great story, like the music is still incredible. The music doesn't suffer at all, mm-hmm. but he throws that in there, you know? And um, so there's a lot of personal touches that you don't 
uncover until you really live with the opera and dig deep. Um, and, you know, there are always stories like that at <coughs> attached to operas, I think, in the creative process. But there's something just more intimate feeling about the way the Mozarts uh, were created, I think, that probably it's, it began as, it, as the operas it themselves got grander in scale and dramatic, you know, and instrumentation, everything. I think it got a little less personal, maybe. Is that fair to say? Yeah, what was so, yeah. What, yeah. what was opera like in Mozart's day? Because we know that concert halls were smaller, mm-hmm. and, um, and we know that instruments weren't hitting the back wall. What would hit the back wall in, in our day and age? Things like the the pianoforte, mm-hmm. very different instruments as well. So, what was opera like? Well, in I, th- I think it probably felt a lot more interactive back then. The audience mm-hmm. was really, and and they would. I mean, you know, you go to the big opera houses today, you know, it's it's customary that people break in with applause and things at, at pretty predictable moments. But I think back then it was even more of a free-for-all. Like people could mm-hmm. applaud or boo or hiss or whatever, ask for a beast, you know, something again. Um, from one, there's uh, there's some things for Guglielmo in this uh, opera that we've been talking, like he wrote different arias for different performances and different people to be inserted. And so you have to make choices about what you're going to do, what you're going to cut, you know, how it's going to work. And, you know, it's... Choose your own adventure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you're personalized. Cozy. What's this cozy going to be like? And I think the, ar- the arias were, were like popular songs at the time. Yeah. And oh, I yeah. think Mozart is what we call numbers opera meaning that you have you have the recitative which is where the plot happens and then you have a musical number um and there's there's more ensemble i think in cozy and then some of some of his earlier operas but i think that's probably the biggest difference like a puccini and a verdi it's through composed the orchestra plays the entire time once once you go you kind of get on that ride and just sort of coast on this this mozart there's so many more decisions that have to be made because we get in we go from recit how do we transition from that recit into the orchestra bringing, bringing them in? Um, there's a lot more nuance, I think, in, in those terms, in terms of how the, how the artists deal with that and how the conductor, you know, the decisions that have to be made with that. But it was, it was intended to be a four-hour event to fill the evening for, this, for society. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'd come in halfway through and not care because they were there to hear one aria <laughs> and then they'd leave and... Um, it it's just it was it was the it was the pop culture of the time. Weren't um, weren't overtures the big overtures um, at some point really used to shut the audience up because they just wouldn't shut up for the for for the for the, for the opera to start so they would just like play this big thing and they would cur- curtain raiser type yeah. of thing yeah I I think they definitely had a function yeah to say okay we're about to start here you go entice them maybe you know throw out a few fragments of things they might hear tease them not every overture does that you know some overtures are just overtures and uh, others are more you know uh, part of the music that you're about to hear later a little synopsis then of the plot if you will i know it's i know it's complex so uh, try to keep it simple um as, as kinsa has told us there are three women should we tag team this or you go sure, for sure, it? Yeah, yeah. Let's, so for let's it. tag team this. <laughs> this is, the plot <laughs> is actually not that complex compared to some of the other, the other well. plots. So um, the basic premise, though, is that there, there are three women and there are three men. Um, the Ferrando and Guglielmo are soldiers, um, and they have a friend who is considered to be an old philosopher, Don Alfonso. 
um, and Ferrando and Guglielmo are lovers with, their lovers are Fioriligi and Dorabella. And the show opens with them talking about how much they love their current, their current partner and how true they are and how chaste and amazing their relationship is. And Alfonso challenges them to say that if given the opportunity that their respective lovers would cheat on them because that's what women are like, <laughs> which is where the we're fickle, which is where the Easily title comes from, Così fan tutte. <laughs> right. And so then that begins a little joke on on the sisters. They plant a seed and see if they'll um, they'll take it. It's funny because I don't consider women to be the ones who are fickle. That's really? <laughs> <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> Isn't that just? <laughs> I don't know. Ooh, this is getting interesting now. <laughs> no, I was. We were talking yesterday, I think, about this. Ward and I. Um, women seem to be easily. Or was it you? Yeah, we were. Sorry. A see bit, how yeah. fickle I am. <laughs> 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 was I with you last night or you? I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, how women like to be admired, and so someone chooses to admire them they'll you know they'll go they'll take the bait who knows i don't know well that was the theory <laughs> at, that was the theory at least and and, and well the, the thing uh, another important point is that the the subtitle is the school for lovers mm-hmm. right and that i think that's a little bit more informative i mean i <clears throat> so tutte the e on the end is what makes it feminine so if he had said cosi fan tutti mm-hmm. that could mean everybody's like this or the me- men are like this. Which but I like that as an interpretation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, everybody's that everybody, like this. Everybody right. has this right. fickle nature. And so today, it's that E that, that draws all the controversy and criticism. And I've heard, uh, believe it or not, um, really noted Mozart interpreters refer to it in everything from you know the most awful, toxically masculine uh, storyline and production to a feminist opera believe it or not, and everything in between. Because it's all, and that's where the director is mm-hmm. really key, because th- I think for a director, there are a lot of different ways you can take this and, and how you interpret it. Right. We stare at you now, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> Back to well, you, Grant. Well, I think that's, that's one of the reasons why I do, I do like this piece, is because it is very ambiguous in terms of what is the resolution of this. Um, as Ward said a lot, there are productions where they, they end up back with their respective partner and the lesson that they're supposed to learn is now your eyes have been opened and this is what <laughs> this is what marriage is going to be like for you. Mm-hmm. Um, there are productions where nobody ends up with, with anybody, which I think is probably more more apt in terms of now that sort of the, the rows of youth and those rose-colored glasses in terms of relationships have been sort of removed – now they can sort of enter into relationships um, in a more honest way. Um, for us, we kind of leave it a little bit ambiguous um, at the end. They, they are coupled up and they sort of have to resolve what just happened, um, but we're, it doesn't end in a marriage, it doesn't end in a celebration. Um, it ends with a question, um, which I think is, is very poignant. Which I can actually see it explains a lot as to why this was not an immediate hit because it exactly. mm-hmm. doesn't end with the big party that everybody wanted it to. Yeah. I, yeah. I saw a terrific production many years ago in Stratford, Ontario of She Stoops to Conquer, or not She Stoops to Conquer, of uh, The Taming of the Shrew. And they set it in the 50s and they made it look like a Fellini movie. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely phenomenal. And the woman who played Kate played her as a dead straight feminist and it was funny because it worked. 
It worked really well, mm-hmm. even down to that very problematic last mm-hmm. soliloquy, the final soliloquy right. that she gives. I put my hand under your foot. It actually worked. And uh, so it never, it, it had sort of occurred to me that there is that fine line in that era of is this, is this a satire? Is this a feminist woman? Or are we laying our, our 21st century ideal, ideologies onto Mozart when we start talking about it being a feminist piece? Oh, I think, I think we are. And I think the brilliance of it as a piece of theater is that it holds up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think with, with a few cuts, you could probably shade it you know, mm-hmm. into sort of whatever, whatever message you want it to be. And to me, that's good theater. Um, and that's why I think Cozy will be a timeless piece, even if it wasn't a hit when it first came out. Even now, even now, productions are always, reviews are always controversial in terms of how they take the piece, um, which, which is exciting in opera, which usually it's just like, it was a pretty production. They sang well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Does your job change uh, depending on the interpretation, or does it musically just stay the same? I, I think it, it it does change sometimes depending on because you know, especially you know when you build toward the end. I mean, Act One basically sets everything up, you know, and this this ridiculous plot kind of unfolds. And okay, what's going to happen in Act Two? And then Act Two is really when they the, the the deeper feelings start to come out. You know, I mean, in the in the beginning, um, you know, as as Kinza was saying, I think. Um, Fiordaligi. So yeah, I see. I'm fickle too. Tutti. Um, Fiordaligi is is much. You know, she's more serious. She's more. You know, uh, just you know, kind of. I don't know what the right word is, but um, poised and you know, just. It, she she's not a joker, you know. And her sister Dorabella is much more of a free spirit. And you see the guys, and one of them, Ferrando, is is very much like Fiordaligi. You know, he's he's very serious, he's very sort of proper and, you know, cares about honor and all these things. And Guglielmo is a little bit more of a free spirit. He's mm-hmm. a clown. And he's a clown. And and so um, when you uh, look at that, you might you would probably think, okay, so Ferrando and Fiordaligi must be together and, the, you know, those couples make sense, right? Yep. Wrong. Wrong. At the beginning, it's the opposite pairing. And so as it unfolds, it's really interesting to see how the two personalities, which are more similar, gravitate toward one another. Mm-hmm. And you get the sense, and the real tension comes between Ferrando and Fiordaligi. I think uh, there's tension, of course, between in the other couple, but it's really powerful with them because they're struggling in themselves with this feeling like they're not being honorable and not doing what they should do, but they're also, they can't um, ignore these real feelings of love. I mean, they're actually falling in love with each other, I think, because the oh, music, yeah, that's what the music says. Yeah. And again, that's where the music, Mozart is so brilliant in the way he colors phrases and shapes the arc of, of how your emotions build. That when you, there are moments when we arrive at them that I'm just, I, I'm so moved, like even in rehearsals sometimes, it's just so powerful. And, but there's no judgment somehow in Mozart, the way Mozart writes these phrases and these harmonies and the choices that he makes and the, the writing for the voice, the lines, the way it all comes together, he shows us the faults of all the characters, every single one of them, but he, there's no judgment. And at the end, you get the feeling like it, it's okay. It's not forgiveness like at the end of some of his other operas, no. but it's acceptance. 
Yeah. You know, it's like humanity is okay. It's okay. It's comforting in a way. I, th- I think so. It's, a, it's, that, it's that very enlightened ideals of the 18th century put into, put into theater form. Um, and it's, it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. As a director, do you find uh, you have to approach as a director a classical era symphony or a classical era opera very differently from a, a romantic or a modern opera? Or is it pretty much all the same? It's just emotion and singing. I think I think at its heart, it's emotion and singing. Um, I think stylistically, they all present challenges in how do you how do you keep the the action moving forward. Um, there are parts of Mozart where, because of the forms in which he is writing, there's repeated text, and you know there there's repeated sections where nothing is really happening on stage. It's just it's just there to make the the music happen. Um, those challenging it just it just means that you have to be more creative in terms of how do you keep it active for the audience to to stay engaged um, with it and it doesn't turn into just a a park and bark or a stand and sing um, concert um, I think that's 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 the challenge with baroque and classical but even some modern operas even that are written now you know you have composers that don't necessarily understand theater and they're writing beautiful music and then how do we keep that interesting. <laughs> But the whole idea of park and bark um, really was the standard, especially for women, um, for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And the, the concept of having an actress who actually, a, a singer who actually had to act well, right. was foreign. You didn't have to. You just stand there. So to, a beautiful voice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say our, our cast is both. I mean, I think they're they're... They're in it to win it in terms of the acting <laughs> um, and, and great singers. And I think that's just the nature of contemporary audiences. Um, people are much more savvy about good performance They, with, with more musical theater, with more, you know, um, with just more media in general. The expectation is a lot higher. You know, when they go on Netflix and they see really good, tangible acting, and then you go into the opera house and you see somebody that's not giving anything and giving any emotion, people know. You know, and I think it's just a higher expectation. Have you as a music director, I know you've, you've seen this shift. Um, when did you, did you really start seeing that pressure on, on uh, opera, operatic actresses and actors to actually act? What pressure? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... That pressure that yeah. Grant was talking <laughs> about from people who want to see real acting up there for that ticket price. Well, it's been going on for a while now. I mm-hmm. mean, it's it's. I think. Um, prob- How long has I the mean, broadcast been on? Because that's I've heard that, that, was, that sort of started a big trend mm-hmm. when people could see people's faces up close on a screen. I think so. On the live broadcasts. That's been at least at least ten years, maybe fit more. More than that. More, than, more that. than that. Almost yeah. twenty. No, I mean it's been a long time now. Yeah. God, wow. I don't know. I'm I'm of two minds about it. I mean, I think. As a society, we're increasingly visual in every way, and so more and more people now listen with their eyes. I know mm-hmm. how weird that sounds, but um, I, I've had people, for example, tell me that they enjoy when I'm really demonstrative on the podium because they know what to listen for. Like if I'm giving a really big indication to the violas or something, like their ear follows my gesture, and they like that, as opposed to a conductor who's just you know a little bit more, you know. Um, 
rigid or, or contained, I guess. Uh, and I don't do it on purpose. It's just the way, I mean, that's just the way I conduct. Well, I th- it's I, funny that you said violas. Is there a viola joke in there somewhere? <laughs> There's always a viola <laughs> Only then joke. That he has to be. <laughs> it's always the violas I have <laughs> to go after, you know, to pull them along. But um, <laughs> no, uh, sorry, violas, if you're listening. Um, <clears throat> but I think that in, in opera, um, I don't know. There are times where I, I think it's a hard balance for singers to find, and there's so many demands on them. I think in a way it's not fair um, because there are times when I have a feeling that, okay, there's just too much being asked of this person in this moment, and the music is suffering. And I hate that because I'm the musician, you know? And for me, it's always the music. I would rather close my eyes and hear someone deliver a piece with all the fire and drama that it needs in the music and that and is enough for me, but it's not, you know, enough for everybody. Right. And, and so, and, and I understand that and that's okay. But I think, you know, if I, I would hate to be a singer in that position, you know, mm-hmm. having to find that balance and that fine line where I can still deliver the absolute best musical product and still give the best, you know, visual and dramatic, you know, product as well. Please respond to that, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, I agree with a lot of what Ward is saying, and I think my my job in terms of that is to pace the show in a way so that in those moments that it, where it needs to be just the music, that enough has happened to to allow the audience to enjoy that stasis um, mm-hmm. for a moment. So there's a lot of there's a lot of care and a lot of thought that goes into that pacing. But on top of that, there what I enjoy about opera in particular is because there are so many dif- so many different elements that we're trying to piece mm-hmm. together. I enjoy those conversations, you know, and it's been nice to be working with Ward and Kenza. You know, she's focused on the recits and how do how do these work and Ward's focused on the orchestra and I'm sort of there sort of looking at the big storytelling and we have to negotiate and navigate all of those all of those moments. Um, and that's that's what makes the rehearsal process exciting. And but it's fun because when you have a good team like I mean a good director will if a, if a music director or a conductor says, you know, this is really, I really just need you to make a little adjustment here mm-hmm. for a good reason, you know, the director will see that immediately and say, oh, absolutely. Just like if the director says to me, well, I need a little more time here to do this corner. Could you just stretch this or delay this downbeat or whatever? Absolutely. No problem. Yeah. So it's a constant collaboration, you know, but we're all, if we're all going toward the same goal, it works beautifully. Um, and we had to do it so fast, you know, it's yeah. it's just been a dream. And I have to, I just want to say a little bit too about um, the recits themselves. I mean, we had to uh, pare it down a lot just to, you know, for the practicality of uh, the space, the time and everything. Yeah. Uh, and Kinza, it's, she just knows it so well. She's done such a great job um, making the right cuts so that the story is still told effectively and the music makes sense and it flows well. And because Kinza, you are oh, not a mere—I mean, mere—but you are more than a collaborative pianist in this particular production. Sure. Kinza I, is a wonderful musician. She she can coach the singers. She plays. I mean, she does she does a lot. She does a lot. Well, I've done this piece before, and um, recitative has to be cut for time reasons. So it's a real art in knowing how to surgically remove a line and not. And preserve things. So if you're going from one harmony to another harmony, how odd is that now? Do you have to change some notes and some harmonies? Do you have to cut in a certain way that the harmonies logically flow into each other where it could sound like that's what Mozart wrote originally? So it's, um, but it's a fun, it's a fun puzzle to figure out how to do it and to, to, to get the information out that you need for the story to make sense. 
to cut enough of it out that it doesn't go into overtime for the orchestra. <laughs> well, I think we all uh, look forward to seeing this puzzle put together. Our guests today have been Ward Steer and Grant Pricer and Kinza Tyrrell. And if you'd like to find out more about the RPO and about uh, uh, Cosi Fantute, you can go to rpo.org. I'm Julia Figueres. This podcast is a production of WXXI Public Broadcasting. <laughs>